0: an amazing honor to be um, introduced um, by the guy who taught me HTML. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but back in the late 90s, Richard created a site called HTML Jalfrezy, and I, w- I, was, uh, I was working at the time as an intern while I was in, uh, at the university, as you say, and um, the guy I worked with, his favorite site in the entire world was HTML Jalfrezy. And within a week or so, my favorite site in the world was HTML Del So, so anyway, thank you, Richard, for for helping helping me along. Um, very similar to uh, Alex, I um, I'm going to be talking about kind of the, the merging of the the web, the merging of the web with um, social site. Oh, with um, with social psychology, and um, the difference is, is that I have I know very little about social psychology, um, but I'm going to try anyhow um, because what I found in, in working with um, clients and on really interesting social projects is that um, it's it's a it's a lot about psychology. I, I remember a couple years ago. Um, I, I met another American designer uh, named Ryan Sims who who works on a site called verb.com. And I was asking him all these questions about, like, you know, how does it work? How, you know, how how is the interaction? Um, because I was really interested in at the time. Um, and we had both had a few beers, and we talked for quite some time. And I remember this kind of moment at the end of our discussion where we were like, web design is now about psychology. And it, web designers need to kind of add these psychological principles to their toolkit in order to figure out how to provide the best like interaction sequence in certain cases and how to provide, you know, engagement and stickiness. Um, So kind of since around that time, um, I've really been trying to read more and more about social psychology um, and everything I read is completely applicable to all the stuff that that we're all working on. um, But... Again, the problem is is that for some reason, the worlds really haven't collided. So my talk is an attempt to try to um, collide those worlds a little bit. Um, so I'm gonna be talking about um, le- leveraging cognitive bias in um, social design. We'll start off with, um, we'll start off with a, uh, a question for you all. I wanna get, get um, your opinion. I'm gonna be showing you pictures of two different restaurants. And I want, want you to know that if, if you were hungry, and you were looking for a place to eat, which restaurant you would go to? Okay, here's the first one. And here's the second one. Okay, First one. Second one. Okay, so now I'll take a vote. Who would go to the first one? Okay. Um, let's say, I don't know, 3 or 4% of you. Um, and who would go to this one? Everyone else, right? Okay. So, um, some of the reasons why most of us would go to the second one is because, well, the first one's pretty cold. It, it, there's, um, there's several elements, um, which you could call design elements. Um, there's, for, for one thing, it's, it's kind of solid back here. It kind of looks like a storefront. So, it, it's not really clear um, what, what type of restaurant it is. Or um, Also, th- there's a very clear barrier here between actually Um, the the, the place that you would sit down and eat and the place that you currently are. Uh, The second one, um, you can walk right up to those tables. Uh, The first one also um, has people walking by. They're not paying attention to the restaurant. Um, But most important of all, of course, is that there's no one sitting down, right? Um, And then the second one, we see a lot lot of evidence of of human activity. Um, We have people in the windows here who um, are engaged. They're talking with each other. Um, and and we have a line coming out the door, um, and it's it's one of those lines that's like the perfect length, right? It, it shows that that it's worth going there, right? So people are kind of bunching in, but it's not long enough to um, dissuade us from going, uh, unless we're in a real hurry. So it's not one of those you know nightclub lines. It's like uh, you know a hundred people long. So um, so the 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 point is that. When when we're faced with making a decision, which I asked you guys to make a decision, um, and we don't know anything about those restaurants, right? We're working on very limited information. The only information we have is the information that, that I showed you in the pictures. Um, we use some sort of strategy to figure out um to figure out which restaurant to go to. Um and in social psychology circles, um, this is sometimes called the bandwagon effect. Um, and it's often associated with being um, acting like a sheep, behaving like a sheeper. Uh, but but that's what we do. You know, when, when we don't know something, we follow the lead of others. Um, so the, the the bandwagon effect is is one of these um, one of these ways. Um, it's, it's called a heuristic that we make decisions based on limited data. So when we don't know everything there is to know, we just use a shortcut. And here's here's a uh, another example, um, kind of in depth. I love this video.
1: The gentleman in the elevator now
0: is a candid star. These
1: folks who are entering, the man with a white shirt, the lady with a trench coat, and subsequently one other member of our staff, will face the rear, and you'll see how this man in the trench coat. his individuality but little by little
0: he looks at his
1: watch but he's really making an excuse for turning just a little bit more to the wall now we try it once again here's the candid subject here comes the candid camera staff three of them at least and, uh, this man has apparently been in groups before. <laughs> Here's a fella with his hat on in the elevator. First, he makes a full turn to the rear, and Charlie closes the door. A moment later, we'll open the door. Everybody's changed positions. (laughs) Now we'll see if we can use... Now we'll see if we can use group pressure for some good. Now, in a moment... On Charlie's signal, everybody turns forward. Notice they take off their hats. And now, do you think we could reverse the procedure? Watch.
0: So um, we we follow the behavior of others, um, and and it's called it's it's called a, it's in in. Um, it's called a heuristic, and, um, and what, um, what we normally think of when we think of uh, rational behavior would be that you explore all your options, you find out as much information as you can, um, and then you make a very um, disciplined decision based on that information. But a heuristic, um, something like the bandwagon effect, is when we just take a shortcut we say, you know what, I don't know anything about the restaurants, um, or I don't know how to stand in this elevator, um and we're just going to i'm just going to follow what other people are doing for for um lack of a better strategy um but the thing with heuristics um is that they have a complement called cognitive uh, cognitive bias which um is when those shortcuts don't turn out all that well and they actually don't work um in some cases those those heuristics that that we use lead to very predictable outcomes and these predictable outcomes um, the, the biases affect all of us, even when we know about them, which is, which is the fascinating part. Um, here are some examples of, of biases um, that are directly related to the design profession. Um, one of my favorites is the Lake Wobegon effect, where um, everybody is above average. Um, everybody thinks they're above average. Um, but you'll notice we have um, things like the uh, not invented here um, bias, um, which affects a tremendous number of, of software developers and designers who, who don't want to, for, 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 um, for anything they can do, they don't want to use someone else's ideas. Um, or uh, someone else uh, um, invented something that's really good and they just refuse to use it because it didn't come from where they are. And of course, the last one, I'm sure none of, none of us have, have ever had this problem, the tendency to underestimate the time and cost of work. Um, and even though we know better and we've done it for years, we still underestimate the time and cost of work. Um, so this whole idea of heuristics and biases um, came out of a seminal paper written in 1974 by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. Um, and since then, a tremendous amount of research in the social psychology field has been based on these ideas. Um, in, in fact, um, I believe it was in 2003 or so, um, they won a Nobel Prize for um, the work that they did. Um, so now I have another question for you. Um, as, as we get into how this relates to design, I think designers can really take advantage of some of these ideas um, in the way that they design screens and the way that they write copies. So that's what I'm going to be talking about. So re- read down this. This is, uh, describes Linda, um, who's a 31-year-old, uh, very bright woman. Um, and this question is from one of the studies that Kahneman and Tversky did, and they essentially asked people this question, okay? And um, in, in terms of bias, you folks are all biased in the sense that you know that I'm talking about heuristics and biases. Um, the people who were getting this test thought it was just some, you know, study of some other sort. So um, they, weren't, they weren't ready to, to be surprised in any way, and they weren't going to see what the answer is. But... Um, so, so, our initial idea, um, um, a lot of us would, would be drawn, actually, um, to, to the second answer here. Um, because all the description that we have in the first paragraph talks about um, kind of traits that we might associate with someone in the feminist movement, right? And that, that's the whole point of the question. Um, but, um, strictly speaking... And i won't has, I won't ask you to raise your hands for this one, um, but strictly speaking um, the the group of people who are bank tellers always has to be bigger than the group of people who are bank tellers and feminists so the the correct answer here is the the thing that's more likely is that Linda is a bank teller um, and so th- this is the one of the classic questions from Kahneman and Tversky in that um, in one of their studies, about ninety percent of of respondents chose the middle one, um, when when th- that actually it c- cannot be the case. Now, um, some of you might be thinking, "Well, people were interpreting the question to mean the first the first option to mean Linda is a bank teller and not in the feminist movement." Um, but that is, that, that's actually um, a big concern that the researchers had, and. Um, I don't know all the details of, of their other research, but essentially they ruled that out over time by doing uh, a lot of um, follow-up studies. Okay, so let's talk about how this starts to relate to design. So this is an example of representation bias, that any amount of detail, as, as the amount of detail in a scenario increases, um, the probability of it actually happening declines really quickly. Because the more and more specific you get, the the less and less likely that is to be the general case. Um, so here's an example of an interface from the site FreshBooks.com, and um, what they've done is, and, and I think I think this is a brilliant piece of um, interface design, is that they they are showing people who use their software. It's an invoicing and billing software, and this is just one part of the page, and what they're doing is they're showing people who um, who are representative users of their software. Now, these people, um, look at all their details. Th- these details probably resonate with you folks in, in, in relatively um, strong ways, design studio, project manager, editor, because this is the audience that they're going after. So what they've done is they've really leveraged the idea of representativeness and put in all those details that will resonate with their exact audience. Um, And they they do some really interesting things. They have authentic photos. Um, So on on a lot of sites, um, um, you see these nice stock photos of people that are um, really well lit and everyone's smiling and everything. Um, But it's just not authentic. And But these guys have done a really good job having authentic photos. They even do things like show team sides, which I think is a a really nice touch um, because it's really speaking to their audience. Now, these people might not be representative of the rest of the people who use their software. But as an interface design tactic, if that's the audience you're aiming at, it really makes sense to dive into those details Because as people read those details, that bias will kind of click into effect. And, you know, if the details happen to be um, details that people resonate with, then they'll they'll be much more likely to um, like the software. So here's another example on Yelp.com. They have a feature called Review of the Day down here on the right. And um, every time I've ever clicked on that feature, the person in that feature... Uh, you get something like this. You get one of the site's most wonderful and engaged users. They have um, a lot of friends. They have um, a bunch of firsts, which means they were the first people to review a certain um, service. They have, they have a you know, um, bunch of, a whole bunch of things going on. They've done a whole bunch of reviews. She's got 182 reviews or 192 reviews. Um, she's essentially a power user. And so what, what Yelp is doing is by showing these people on the homepage of the site, they're they're showing the desired behavior of people within the system. So people who are new to Yelp and they come and they say, oh, that's the type of behavior that is value valued here at Yelp.com. That's the representative user. When in fact it's not the representative user. If you go through the if if you you know start clicking on a whole bunch of people, you go go through a whole bunch of um uh, folks on the site, um, you, you actually come away with the, the feeling that, well, there's a lot of people who don't do much at all on the site. But those aren't the people who make the homepage. So here's another question for you. Um, would you accept this bet, okay? A 50% chance of gaining 100 pounds or a 50% chance of losing 100 pounds, how many would accept this bet? One person. OK, there's a couple in back. Um, probability-wise, it's, it's 50%, so why not, right? Um, how about 200 pounds? OK, a couple more. OK. 300 pounds? OK. Wow, I should have gone higher. That's as high as my slide goes. Um, so um, it's it's been shown in, in in many studies that, of course, probability-wise, um, it it it's the same. The, the, the first one is fifty percent chance of gaining and losing. But the thing is, there's this thing called loss aversion, and people, um, w- when they're making decisions about about money and and other things, losses loom much larger than gains. So the first the first bet, right? You could actually have have won a hundred pounds, and nobody tried to do it. It was a fifty percent chance. You know, no, n- well, two or three. We're, we're willing to do it. I mean, that, that's that's really something. Um, and so, you, you know, again, this is, this is a bias that affects everyone. It would affect people if we went, um, you know, to Asia and asked the same question. Um, and it would affect people if we went to Africa, asked the same question, North and South America. It affects everybody the same. Um, and um, I think we can leverage this as well. If we talk about so, so um, similar to what uh, Alex was saying about when people start adding um, content th- content to the sites and they're starting to get engaged, if we frame that stuff in terms of a loss, so if we frame, for example, um, on, uh, on NetVibes, you go to the website um, and you can play around on the website, they have a really cool kind of like instant engagement thing where you can, you can start um, using widgets and stuff. Um, well, in the top right-hand corner, they have this text that says, Not a member yet? Register now to save your page. Oh, wow. You mean it's not saved? You know, I have to do something to save it. I might lose it. So they're, they're starting to kind of go down the road of, of framing it as a loss. So th- they could word this in other ways. Here's another example um, from, from Chimp, which is uh, the, the project um, I'm currently ensconced in. And this is a, fe- I'm going to show you two examples of a, of a bit of interface that, that I worked on. Um, this is a feature described in terms of gain, okay? So we, we were talking about um, open ID and how, when you, because when you sign up for the site, you get an Open ID that you can use on a whole bunch of other sites. So the idea is, is that you can now log into a whole bunch of other sites. Like, we, that's, that's a benefit that you know, that's part of the system. But it it turns out, so this is one of the the versions, but here's the same feature described in terms of a loss, right? So don't forget another password, okay? This resonates a lot more with people because they know the pain of losing and they really want to prevent that. So just changing this copy, it was just a copy change in this case, um, makes that much more effective. Um, So... Um, here's another example. This is actually, this is a wonderful feature um, on Best Buy. It's an e-commerce uh, electronics retailer. Um, when it, th- so they sell like TVs and all that stuff. So when you are shopping on Best Buy um, and you get to the checkout, uh, the, the checkout um, moment, they don't make you sign up for an account, right? They can say checkout without creating an account, which is great. In, in fact just that feature alone um, improves um, improves um, conversion by almost 20%. But anyway, so this is the feature that you need on the other end, right? So you still want people to create an account because it's in the companies, it's in Best Buy's best interest to have people create an account. But it's also in the best interest of the person um, shopping. But they talk about, they mostly frame this around, Terms of future savings, right? So save time the next time you shop, right? But th- that's p- people don't really deal with future savings all that strongly. But what they do, because of the loss aversion, I, I wonder if this could be um, redesigned and framed more effectively as an immediate loss. So what if, what if instead of it save time the next time you you shop, it was something like don't lose the ability to track your package, or if you don't sign up now, you won't be able to track this package, or something like that. Um, okay, here's another question for you. What is more valuable to you? Um, any old coffee mug down at the convenience store, or one that um, your loved one gave you? Um, my guess is um, that most of us would choose B, because it has you know, sentimental value, it means something to us, But the reality is that in a marketplace, they're actually worth the same thing, right? Um, But this is an example of ownership bias. That when we own something, when it comes into our purview, um, we feel like it's more valuable. And they've um, social psychologists have done really interesting studies where they've they've literally asked um, asked people. So there's like a coffee cup on the table. And they say, how much would you pay for that coffee cup? And people say, like, like a buck or something. And then um, they do another set of tests where when everyone enters the room, they give them a coffee cup. And then at some point later uh, in the day, they put the coffee cup down on the table and they said, that's your coffee cup. How much would you sell that for? And it's invariably like 3 or $4. Um, And And it's just a coffee cup they got that day. Um, so that's um, and, and and again, these things have been tested over and over and over in all sorts of cultures, and they really they really are consistent. So here's an example of how uh, just a simple example of, of ownership. You know, um, YouTube is all about me. Uh, MySpace is all about me. Um, I happen to be staying in a place called My Hotel. Um, you know, it's I, I kind of feel like it's my place. You know, um, so. So these are just kind of subtle, subtle ways um, of you know changing copy or or whatever, to um, or or completely branding your your, your startup, um, to to talk about ownership and to just give just convey the idea of ownership. Um, here's a great example: Flickr is just littered with use um, in your in your stuff, um, and so everything about the site you can't go there without thinking. This is all my stuff, and I own it, you know? And it probably doesn't make the entire difference between using the system and not, but it gives the sense of ownership. I think that's very applicable um, in a a lot of cases. Okay, so um, here's a really, really interesting um, problem, the sign-up problem. So it's the product adoption problem. A lot of us are working on projects um, where we need more and more people to use it. Maybe we're working on a startup um, where we want to drive uh, adoption of our product or we're working on an existing system and we want to grow our user base. And, um, but the thing is, is that people can only use so much software. And we happen to have, so, so, so let me think, I think I have like 20 or 30 applications that I use all the time that are my favorite pieces of software. And yet, there's a thousand applications being released all the time. Why am I not trying new stuff? Why am I not switching? Why am I not um, at least taking the time to see if they offer more? Well, all these biases kind of work together to prevent me from doing that. For one, I have ownership bias. So I bought my copy of SuperDuper, and I paid 30 bucks for it, or how much ever it is now, 40 bucks, I don't know. Um, Um, and I own it. So I'm not going to give that up very easily. So anybody else who's offering something similar is going to have to do a heck of a lot more than offer a competing service. Um, They're going to have to do, you know, way more than that. But so so the people who, um, people like us who who use software all the time, we value it um, a lot. Everybody values the software a lot. In fact, um, they, they... um, because of the ownership bias, and because of loss aversion, um, we value it approximately three, more ta- three times more than is, is rational. Um, there, there's a wonderful uh, uh, paper um, in the June 2006 Harvard Business Review called Eager Sellers and Stony Buyers, um, which c- kind of blew my mind when I read it, because it's, it, it, it very clearly talked about All, how all these cognitive biases are, are a huge impediment to product adoption. And, and, you know, all of us working on product adoption, we're not just trying to climb this little hill. It's not, we don't just have to convince, um, just go out and convince somebody. We have to really knock them over the head with a sledgehammer to get them to, to use our product. So, um, potential buyers or potential users are, are are biased to keep what they have. The really interesting thing is that on the other side, on the software maker's side, they're biased as well, right? So they're biased um, because they own this project, right? It's their project. It's their baby. Um, it's their piece of software. And, uh, you know, they're really proud of it. But there's also, you know, the optimism bias that was on that list earlier, where, um, you know, m- most people are, uh, by nature, optimistic for the future. We We envision the future as better than the past, when in fact, you know, it all averages out. So because of various biases on the software maker side, they actually overvalue software that they're offering by about three times. Um, and the, the, the author of, of this piece who, who came up with this model, um, he, he basically looked at a whole bunch of wide-ranging research, and in some cases, people valued stuff two times more, in some cases, it was four more. So we kind of simplified it and said it's about three times more. But the net effect is that there's a nine times disparity between the the person who is the potential user of the software and the the person who's offering the software. So there's there's this huge gulf between the desire of the person, um, the potential user, and the desire um, of the person offering the software. So... For web designers in this day and age, when, you know, there's thousands of pieces of software being shipped every day, um, people are, the, the, novelty's kind of worn off in the sense that you, you just don't go out and try everything. We're, we're here to do work on the web. So as long as super duper is working for me, I'm not gonna try, I just don't have time to try anything else. Um, and, um, so, the sign-up problem, I I believe, is one of the largest problems. the the product the, the initial product adoption is one of the largest problems facing almost every web design uh, team in this day and age. Um, so I, I think looking at it from this standpoint, at least we know what we're kind of dealing with. It's 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 a huge barrier. So what can we what can we do from a design standpoint to kind of um, push back at this? Um, So, here's an example of Slide. Slide is a widget maker for social networks, uh, Facebook, and MySpace. And one of the things they do is they instantly engage you into making something. Um, So, you, if you ever click on a slide widget, this is, this is something similar to what you'll get. Um, You, you put a photo um, in the top left. You add a bunch of images. So, there's no sign up here, right? Sign up has been deferred. And you just make something, right? And you own it. Like, you make something. And the, the act of making something um, signals ownership, right? I make something, I own it. Um, well, there are large record companies and um, large interests that don't believe that. Um, social networks, you take your information when you, when you put it on there. But um, th- the point is, is that the act of doing it creates this feeling of ownership. So, slide, you know, I think that's, that's a great example of instant, instant um, engagement, um, instant feeling of ownership. Um, another example, very popular example, um, genie gets you started, gets you starting, um, you, you create your family tree almost immediately, you own it. Um, my, my favorite example that I'll end with is back to FreshBooks, who um, I showed you, showed you those folks earlier. If you're looking to design a sign-up page, you, sh- you definitely have to check out FreshBooks. They use almost every, um, almost every sign-up tactic that I've seen uh, on their homepage. Um, and I think they do a great job. I know, I know they test the page a lot. Um, but let's, let's just go through some of, some of the things. I, I think um, they really kind of leverage all those uh, biases that could possibly crop up. They have try it for free. Um, you can, you know, sign up for free. They show um, a little bit of that uh, bandwagon stuff. There's 300,000 uh, new users. Um, you know, they have features and benefits. So, it, you know, if people want to read and they want to check out the benefits, they can do that. Why is this better than your the, the product that you're currently using? Um, that's what they're really getting at there. Um, of course, I, I, I failed to mention that they explain exactly what it is, like right off the bat, which is... For some reason, a hard problem for um, some designs. Um, they also offer a telephone, um, telephone number, which I think is uh, a great idea uh, right there if you have any questions. Um, one of the things, um, I've talked a little bit uh, with Mike McDermott, their CEO, and he said that, you know, they're growing, or, they're, as they're growing over time, they're, they're, they're getting into bigger and bigger companies. So that telephone number really made a lot of sense um, to, to keep really prominent because this isn't just a you know people aren't deciding just to use this for themselves they're deciding for you know larger companies um, so then so then they have a whole bunch of of bits down here some of our happy users I already talked about that uh, who uses FreshBooks um, where is FreshBooks uh, used I love that graphic um, and that really get, that that's, that really gives you the restaurant sense that there's there's people in line here right that there's people using this thing. Um, and then they also have feedback from users, which is really, really cool, what what our users report. Um, and then they just keep going. <laughs> uh, more happy users. So now they have um, uh, more quotes from people um, continuing down the line, down to the bottom of the page, Just just a bunch of quotes. They've highlighted, um, you know, the, the nice bit. Um, so, so I think that... Um, I think, as, as Alex was saying, from kind of an, an academic standpoint, it helps to have kind of a model to think about this stuff a lot of times. Um, I've found this this sort of stuff, like, really invaluable when I'm talking to people who I need to convince of something, like, you know, I think we should probably do it this way. Uh, maybe we should frame it as a loss instead of a gain, uh, because, you know, losses um, loom larger um and you know little things like copywriting to larger things like sign up you know in in entire pages um so uh my, my if i if i had to guess for the future i think we're going to see more and more crossover um from industries like gaming from acad- academic circles like social psychology um just just more and more of how to you know how to inform our design um and really how to um how to deal with irrational people basically. So anyway, thank you. We have have time for questions, don't we? Five minutes? Okay. I'm not going to take any questions from you, Alex. You're a social psychologist. Uh. Uh, Hi. Uh, Isn't this evil? I'm sorry? Isn't this evil? Are you trying to mislead people into into things that they don't want to do? Um, you, you mean is it like manipulating? Yeah. Well, um, absolutely. No. No, I mean, I mean that that's a great question. I I think if if, if your if your business business ethics are um, are in the right place, you know, if your heart's in the right place doing as a business, then. It's not unethical that you're, you know, you're trying to provide a win-win. If, you know, if, you, if, say, say you're offering, um, a piece of software that you really, you know, you're really frustrated with what's out there and you really do provide a better solution, um, you know, that, that's what innovation is. You know, you're, you're, in, in theory, making the world a better place. Um, to your point though, this can, you know, getting into psychology is what, you know, is all everything they do at you know casinos and everything, and they really do manipulate people. Um, and you know, we, even sometimes when we know it, like you go to you go to a casino, for example, um, and you know everything's built around uh, the, the the social psychology of it all. But yet, st- people still sign up for these cards that they take around, and they, the, they know the casino can track everything they do, and the casino essentially can can game the system in any way they want keep them coming back um, but you know I don't know that's the really weird thing with cognitive bias that even when we're aware of it we're still susceptible to it um, so whether or not it's evil I mean it's, you know, we're going to fall for it some way um, but I think, I think the question is more about business ethics if, if your business is ethical then, then the, the way you sell your business can be ethical too I was kidding, by the way. I will take a question. Yes? You you mentioned earlier um, a couple of metrics, one of which was uh, checkout without account sign-up. Yes. You said increases sales by 20%. Where's that from? Because 20% would be great for me. Um, Yeah. Um, Well, I'm not at liberty to say uh, who who the client was, but it was for a major uh, U.S. uh, e-commerce retailer. So, um, in fact, it's about between ten and twenty percent. That we we on several projects in in the job that I worked on last, um, when shoppers were given an option to check out without doing registration, um, that it increased sales. So, yes. Hi,
1: I'm not going to hurt you. I promise. Okay. Um,
0: you say that a lot of the biases are international. Yeah, and and I think. I feel it's quite safe to say that not all sites work internationally. And I'm wondering if there's anything that you can say that doesn't work internationally from this point of view. So say observation bias works and all those types of things. Right. What doesn't work internationally? What wouldn't work in the UK or in China or somewhere else? Okay, that's, that's a great question. I have absolutely no idea. Yeah. I, I will, uh, my, my next talk, I'll, I'll work some of that in. Any, any other questions? Easy yeah. questions. Well, actually, it's more of a follow-up. Um, in terms of international applicability or whatever, um, I think that stuff like YouTube or MySpace might be less applicable to collectivism, uh, whatever, collectivity-oriented uh, societies like uh, Asian societies, whereas Western societies are more individualistic. Yep. Um, so maybe that kind of... Goes in that yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Um, uh, and now that you mention it, um, I do remember kind of reading that it's it's most it's mostly about strength of bias in different societies. So, like as you say, in some societies, biases will be much stronger. So, the ownership um, bias might be much stronger in some societies than in others. Um, yes. How do you um, sort of reconcile between something like Fresh Books, which to me look
1: like a Direct marketing pitch that I might receive in my in my mail and toss toss into the trash something from Time magazine or something perhaps uh, with the success of something like Slide which although it uses some similar tricks seems to be a lot less sort of full on is there a one of a better word a heuristic to actually sort of say you know when, when have you gone too far with um, with using these
0: sorts of tricks when, when have you gone too far um... Well, well, I think I think there, I think there is a danger of trying to automate too much. So, um, if if you get people started and they actually don't know what's going on, they actually don't know that they're building a widget for Slide. Um, you know, that's certainly an issue. Um, but but really, that's that's a contextual question. Every single application is going to be different. Um, FreshBooks is even going to be different than their competitors, or you know, because. They have you know a different perhaps a different interaction sequence, or they get people started differently um, you know uh, we were talking in the our uh, the workshop that we had yesterday about how some some sites um, actually get you started instantly um, so they 'll have instead of like a form to sign up they'll they 'll do like NetVibes did, and you 'll just start instantly um, you know and I think I think there is a trade-off that in some cases a screen actually describing what the heck's going on is is more valuable. Like um and, and one of the other things that that Goreville mentioned that that piece that I mentioned from the Harvard Business Review is that what most um what actually I'm applying it to design and so I'll paraphrase what he was saying, but what most designers don't think about is the behavior change we're asking for when we're introducing a new product. So we're not just saying we want you to sign up for our piece of software, we're saying, oh yeah, remember that habit that you have of using that other piece of software every day for the last five years? Yeah, we don't want you to do that anymore. Right? Um, so that's a that's a huge behavior change. So, in terms of behavior change, you want to minimize that, you know, as much as possible. Um, and um, so, um, and th- th- this, I, I read an interesting piece talking about how Google was so successful, um, and and because they didn't make you change your behavior, right? So you just, you just kept typing in a query, like you, you just went to a different site. Um, but, but the flip side is, is that when a new, better search engine comes along, um, they'll probably just have the same exact query box. So um, you, you know, it, it it really, it really, it's a difficult thing, and it's very contextual. Um, do you have, yeah, I guess that's my answer for that one. Um, do you have any other questions? Okay, I'm not going to stand in the way of your food, so let's eat.